One of the things I enjoy the most about going to the movie theater is watching the trailers. I love movie trailers. And a great movie trailer gives just enough of the plot away to entice a viewer without ruining the whole story. And sometimes the trailers entertain us more than the actual movie itself. Revelation chapter 11 gives us a trailer version of the feature film we're going to see in Revelations 12 through 16. It's giving us a visual representation, a condensed version of a bunch of chapters that are going to happen later on. It's a preview. So what we see in Revelation 11 are two martyrs who testify to Christ under intense persecution from an enemy called a beast. Now, these two martyrs represent the Jewish Gentile church allied together in their witness under the persecution of Nero, the beastly emperor of Rome. And they're going to die at his hands, but their martyr blood is going to signify not their ultimate defeat, but rather their victory as God will raise them up and vindicate them before their enemies. Martyrdom testifies that God's kingdom is not of this world, and it also testifies that God's kingdom will invade this world and bring about its renewal and resurrection. This is the trailer. This is an encouragement to the suffering church that God is in control and he will glorify them through their suffering like he did with his son, Christ. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 paint the Jews as the primary antagonists of the church, with pagan Rome playing a background role. They're sort of neutral, sometimes hostile, but the main issue is a divide within Judaism. People who believe the Messiah who are Jews and people who reject the Messiah who are Jews. But the revelation of the book of Revelation, the secret of Revelation, is that Rome will take the foreground as they persecute the church. Rome will start to take a more active role in oppressing God's people. And they're gonna do so by allying with the corrupt Jewish priesthood against the church. You start to see hints of this with Pontius Pilate allowing the Jewish crowds to call for Jesus to be crucified, even though Pontius Pilate knows that he's innocent. That, those are the seeds of that alliance, but that alliance is gonna come into full bloom in chapters 12 through 16, which Revelation chapter 11 gives a foretaste of. So Revelation 11 is a visual exhortation to the church in light of this coming Roman persecution. Be faithful unto death, for God is going to raise you up and give you victory. So Revelation 11 divides into four sections, roughly. First, God marks out the church for persecution, verses 1 to 2. Second, God empowers the church for witness, verses 3 to 8. Third, God vindicates the church before her enemies, verses 9 to 14. And finally, God glorifies his church before the nations, verses 15 to 19. So let's take these in order. First, God marks out the church for persecution. In the first two verses, we read this. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So this comes right after Revelation 10, where John receives an open scroll from an angel, and he eats that scroll and internalizes that message. That scroll is the book that was bound and sealed with seven seals given to Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. He alone is worthy to break it. Well, he breaks them open. And you, you have the sequence of the seals and the seventh seal opens up seven trumpets. And now 
we have this vision of this open scroll ready to be revealed. Its contents are ready to be preached out. But before that happens, these visions appear as a prelude before the contents are actually disclosed. So let's take a deeper look at some of the elements of this first vision. The positive command is to measure the temple and altar of God and those who worship there. The negative command is not to measure the outer court because that's been given over to the Gentiles, to the nations. So God's act of measurement divides. Now, Peter Lightheart notes that the Bible marks and measures holy places and people. You can see this also in Revelation chapter 7, when God marks out the 144,000 as holy martyrs, and that divides them out from those who are eventually going to receive the mark of the beast. So marking, measuring, sealing, they're kind of the same kind of idea of setting apart people for a particular purpose. And I think that this shows us that the marked out temple, altar, and worshipers refers to the 144,000. This is another way of describing the martyrs that are going to lose their lives for the sake of Christ before the destruction of the temple. And what God's going to do is he's going to say, I'm marking you out to suffer, but I'm going to preserve you through that suffering so you'll be a faithful witness. So John marks out the temple as holy. He divides it from the larger enclosure of the outer court, which becomes unclean. Why is it unclean? Because now Gentiles have entered into it. They've made it unclean. Now, some interpreters take this as a prophecy of the Gentile Romans trampling over Jerusalem and destroying the temple. But I don't think that this is what's going on because it seems like all of Jerusalem is destroyed. We're here, only the outer court of the temple is destroyed. But we know that the Romans destroyed the actual temple. So I, I don't think this is what's going on here. And Peter Lighthart makes this point that the words temple and holy city in Revelation only ever refer to the heavenly temple and the new Jerusalem. So this is probably talking symbolically about the new Jerusalem and the holy temple of God's people rather than the actual Jerusalem and the actual temple that is standing but soon to be destroyed. If that's the case, we can put it together like this. God marks out by measuring his holy saints who worship in the true heavenly temple. And he marks them out from the outer court of unbelieving Jews who have been given over to the Gentiles. They've, they're going to ally with the Gentiles, the Jews, the corrupt priesthood, the ones who deny Christ. They're going to ally with pagan Rome. They're former enemies, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they're going to ally with Rome together as a force to fight against the church. Remember, the mystery of Revelation is that Rome will ally with the corrupt priesthood against the church. Now, if we put this together, a narrative emerges. God marks out his church, the true temple, as holy, while he gives over unbelieving Israel to ally with the Gentile Romans and become unclean, and that those two forces are going to ally together to trample the holy city, the people of God, the church, for 42 months. 42 months equals three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time. The book of Daniel uses that marking a lot, time, times, and half a time. Three and a half is half of a perfect seven, a full week. So it's a broken week, three and a half. It's a broken week, which indicates two things. Negatively, three and a half means that this will be a time of persecution, disorder, and chaos. But positively, the trampling will not be a full trampling. It's going to be an incomplete persecution, an incomplete destruction. God is going to intervene and interrupt their suffering and bring about an intervention, a deliverance. So God marks out the church both for persecution and preservation within that persecution. And this prepares the church for the second part, to witness unto death. 
God empowers the church for witness, verses 3 to 8. So Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, provides in summary what the remainder of the chapter will depict in detail. God marks out his church with power to testify in the face of persecution. Listen to verses 3 to 8. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. As I said in the intro, the two witnesses symbolize the Jew-Gentile church as it testifies to Christ under the persecution of the Roman beast. Paul describes God's people as an olive tree with Gentiles grafted in. Now, olive trees are interesting. Their branches don't grow out of a trunk, but straight out of a root from the ground. So each branch of the olive tree is kind of its own tree. But when you place those two branches together, they graft together and become one new tree. So the two witnesses are two olive trees, Jew and Gentile, grafted together, giving one faithful witness. But we also see that the olive trees are described as lampstands, which in Revelation symbolizes churches. So this gives us a strong indication that we're talking symbolically about the corporate entity of the church made up of the branch of Jews grafted with the branch of the Gentiles. So the Jew-Gentile church, they're prophesying with the fire of God's word against his enemies. I love this imagery. Do you think about preaching that way or you think about evangelizing that way? The word of God by the spirit is bringing Pentecostal fire out and devouring people. I think that's uh, ought, to, ought to give us a, a confidence in the word of God and its power. This also links back to Revelation 9's sixth trumpet, which unleashes a heavenly army which breathes fire, smoke, and sulfur. And this connection is further strengthened by the fact that Revelation 11 is still part of the sixth trumpet section. The seventh trumpet hasn't blown, so this is probably connected with the heavenly army led by the four angels at the end of chapter 9 with the sixth trumpet. So there seems to be that those two are describing the same phenomenon. Revelation 6 is describing the heavenly army of the church, and Revelation 11 is describing the prophetic witness of the church with the word of God. This explains why the witnesses receive power to shut the sky from giving rain, like Elijah, and the ability to turn water into blood and strike the earth with plagues, like Moses. The church sums up and exceeds the prophetic ministry of the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. They're in line of the prophets. That's what the church does. It has a prophetic witness with the word of God. It comes into the world and it testifies to the truth about Christ. It's continuing that prophetic ministry in Christ. But their power does not preserve them from pain. That's important to recognize. Once these two witnesses finish their testimony, God allows the beast from the bottomless pit to make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Remember, the saints conquer by going through death, not avoiding it. The beast, which we established refers to the emperor Nero, who persecuted the church for 42 months from 64 AD until his suicide in 67 AD, seems to be the historical referent here. 
there really was a historical pagan emperor, Nero, who persecuted the church for 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days. And what happens is the corpse of the martyrs lies in a great city, symbolically called Sodom in Egypt. So this Roman persecution comes, martyrs die, and their bodies are sitting in this unidentified city, but we get a couple glimpses into its true identity. Now, it's called spiritually or symbolically Sodom and Egypt. Sodom represents human depravity. If you remember the story of Lot and all the kinds of debauchery that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Egypt is the place of oppression. So what is this great city that is both a place of depravity and oppression? Well, it's the place where Christ was crucified. That's Jerusalem. The great city is Jerusalem. This is a stunning reversal. Jerusalem, in its rejection of Christ, has become a spiritual Sodom and Egypt because of the way they've treated the martyrs. They've become oppressors. They've become violent and evil towards God's people. And they're going to receive judgments of plague and hail for shedding martyrs' blood. But the story does not end with a death, but a resurrection. This is the third part. God vindicates the church before her enemies in verses 9 through 14. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So the church testifies and they shed martyr blood. And that draws distinct reactions from the surrounding world. The peoples, tribes, and languages of the nations refuse to put their bodies in the tomb, indicating a kind of neutral reaction. They sort of just stare at the dead bodies. Now, that's often a reference to the Gentiles, peoples, tribes, and languages. That's the nations. So the Gentiles respond neutral to kind of astounded. But those who dwell on the earth, and remember, we're translating earth as land because that's what the Greek word can also mean. And it seems to fit more in the context, references the unbelieving Jews. Jews are people of the land. And they're rejoicing at the death of this prophetic witness of the church. So, two responses. Now, the rejoicing of these unbelieving Jews does not last long because three and a half days later, God breathes life back into the church and raises them from the dead. He raises the martyrs up to glory. Now, the three and a half days symbolically truncates the three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, all of that. But it also brings the week to completion. So it's almost like this. The church testifies and is preserved by God to witness to Christ for 1260 days, three and a half years, half a week. Then they're going to be dead for three and a half days, half of a week. Half of a week plus half of a week equals a full week. So after their testimony and their suffering, God raises them on the seventh day in the fullness of the week. I think that's symbolically what's going on there. Now, the church at many points in history appears to die, but God's spirit always breathes new life. The story of the church is one of death and resurrection. The church rises and like Christ shakes the earth, destroying a 10th of Jerusalem and 7,000 people. Remember when Jesus rose, there was a massive shaking of the earth. And I think there's a parallel here 
that even though the church appears to die, God is actually through their death fulfilling his purposes. Now, these numbers are kind of strange. Um, God tells Isaiah he's only going to preserve a tenth of Israel. And he tells Elijah only 7,000 of Israel will not bow to Baal. But here God reverses the numbers. One-tenth of Jerusalem falls, but nine-tenth survives. 7,000 people die, but more thousands do not. Maybe it's saying that the church's prophetic ministry not only sums up the prophets, but exceeds them. It has greater fruit. It's fulfilling even more the work that Moses and Elijah and Isaiah tried to do. So the raising of the two witnesses up to a cloud is also a preview of Revelation chapter 14, 15, that that section there, where God is actually going to harvest his martyrs, raise them up and bring about judgment. So this is a preview that you want to keep in your mind as we continue on in the book of Revelation. All of this brings us to the final section, verses 15 and 19, where God glorifies his church before the nations. All of Revelation 11 serves as a prelude to the blowing of the seventh and final trumpet, which is going to unveil and inaugurate God's reign on the earth. Verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So the testimony of the martyrs proves faithful. Heaven cries out that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ, who reigns forever. But how does this victory come? By the blood of the martyrs. God inaugurates his kingdom in Christ's resurrection and then establishes it over the ages through the faithful witness of his church unto death. But an inauguration does not mean consummation. A president may be inaugurated in a day, but their administration's policies take time to have an effect. And every new administration makes enemies. Christ has ascended, but he makes enemies. There's still going to be hostility. And his reign is not going to be fully in effect until all of the leaven of the gospel has worked its way out into the world. The nations rage, but God's wrath comes against them. First in the destruction of Jerusalem, but finally in the final judgment of all nations at the end of time. God vindicates his martyrs in the first century, and he'll do the same for those in the 21st. He is with his church through all of time. This is important because something astonishing happens. God's heavenly temple opens and reveals the Ark of the Covenant. The earthly temple was a dwelling place of God and man, but here God opens the heavenly temple. And the point of revelation is God opening a way to dwell with his people. Why do you open a door? To let people in and to let people out. He opens the door of heaven to let the martyrs come in, which we're going to see later on in Revelation. But he also opens up heaven for the new Jerusalem to descend. The veil between heaven and earth has been pierced by Christ's ascension. And now the Lord prepares to descend with lightning, thunder, earthquakes, and hail to bring about justice and vindication for his martyrs. So God marks out his holy people. He allows them to suffer under the Jewish pagan Rome alliance against them. 
but he promises that their martyr blood will prove to be victorious, that God will raise them up even though they seem like they're dead. And God is still doing that today with the martyrs across the globe, with people suffering in different nations. They're shedding their blood, but it's never in vain. God vindicates his saints. This is how his reign is not only inaugurated, but brought to bear upon all the earth.